morning. Good morning. Um, I have to say, I want to go on the record. I want to be perfectly clear. I, too, am with her. So um, I, uh, and it's not because I have a daughter. I do have a daughter, but it goes deeper than that. And frankly, if I were to tell you as entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurs always see lots of threats on the, on the horizon, um, lack of capital, lack of venture capital activity, lack of liquidity, lack of IPOs. I think the biggest single threat to entrepreneurship is Donald Trump. So uh, let just be perfectly clear. I hope you all tweet that. And if, <laughs> and if people start unfollowing me, I don't care. Um, that's how strongly I feel. So uh, end of my editorializing. Actually not, I will continue to do that. But, uh, <laughs> so I have uh, 14 minutes and 11 seconds. I'm going to give you a 45-minute speech in 14 minutes and 11 seconds. Of course, if I go long, what are they going to do? Like not invite me back next year? So <laughs> right? what can they do? We're already running late, so what the hell? So I'm going to give you the lessons of Steve Jobs. These are the entrepreneurship lessons that I learned from Steve. I worked for Apple from 1983 to 1987, and then 1995 to 1997. I worked in the Macintosh division, arguably the largest collection of egomaniacs in the history of California. And that's saying a lot, because we have a lot of egomaniacs in California. Um, the Macintosh division probably held that record for about 30 years. Facebook recently broke it, but we held the record for three decades. Um, you've probably seen many high-tech speakers, uh, and so have I. And I will tell you, with rare exception, uh, there are two things about them. First, they suck. Second, they go long. It's a deadly combination. If you suck and you're short, it's okay. If you're great and you're long, it's okay. But if you suck and go long, that's a bad thing, okay? It's like being stupid and arrogant. And so I, I use the top 10 format so that in case you think I suck, you know approximately how much longer I'll suck, okay? So these are the top 10 lessons that I learned from Steve Jobs. Lesson number one is that customers cannot tell you what they need. Customers can only describe the current status quo, and, and they want it to be better, faster, and cheaper. They cannot describe true revolutionary change, true innovation. So it's very dangerous to ask customers, what should we do? Um, if you think about it, with Apple, back in the mid-'80s, when we asked our customers, what should we do, they said, bigger, faster, cheaper, Apple II. Nobody said, make an incompatible computer with no software, no programming languages, too small a disk, not enough RAM, piece of crap. Don't, nobody told us to do that. That's what we did. <laughs> customers, customers cannot tell you how to innovate. Next thing is innovation truly happens on the next curve, not on the curve we're on. And I like to use a very analog example. This is the ice business. There used to be an ice harvesting business late 1800s, early 1900s. This meant that Bubba and Junior would go to a frozen lake or a frozen pond with a saw, with a sleigh and a horse, cut blocks of ice. 30 years go by, ice 2.0. Now we have an ice factory. You freeze water any time of year, any city. Hallelujah, right? It doesn't have to be winter. It doesn't have to be cold. You could do this in Honolulu. You could do this in Singapore. You could do this in Sao Paulo. Life is good, so much better. Ice 3.0, now you have the refrigerator curve. It's not freezing ice centrally and being delivered by the ice man in a truck. Now you have your own personal ice factory. It's called a PC, a personal chiller. 
The great thing about this example is that none of the ice harvesters became ice factories and none of the ice factories became refrigerator companies and none of the refrigerator companies are becoming biotech companies because most companies start on the curve and die on the same curve. They define themselves in terms of what they already do as opposed to the benefits they provide. The factory, the refrigerator, the harvester all provided the same benefit, convenience and cleanliness. So the benefit is the same. So you would think that if you are the ice harvester and you learn about an ice factory, you would jump to the next curve. Doesn't happen. You would think if you're the ice factory, you hear about the refrigerator, you would jump to the next curve. Didn't happen. How many of you use a Kodak camera today? How many of you use a Polaroid camera today? How many of you use a data general computer? How about a Remington Rand typewriter? How about a Smith Corona typewriter? Because companies don't jump to the next curve. The real action is on the next curve. Number three, I'm going to... I'm going to bastardize the central concept of Eric, who I admire greatly. In fact, I go beyond admiration of Eric. I'm jealous because he sells more books than I do. And I realize that he has this great concept of the MVP. But I think we need to up our game. And I'm going to add two more Vs, okay? So the first V that I want to add is that it's valuable because you can have a company that is viable but is not doing something that's valuable. And the, and the third V that I want to add is that it is validating. That is, it is a piece of data. It is a prototype. It is a product or service that validates the vision. So now you have to make something that is viable, valuable, and validating. Macintosh was all three. It was viable, validating, and valuable. It changed the world. You know, to use an anti-example with Apple, today, Apple could decide to go into the laser printer business, go back into the business, right? You go to the Apple store, you buy a Macintosh, you buy an Apple label laser printer. That would be viable. People would buy it. Is it valuable? Not at all. The world doesn't need another laser printer. Does it validate anything about Apple's vision? Not at all. It's just a printer. So I'm asking you to up your game. Make a MVVVP. Number four, I learned from Steve that big challenges cause big changes. If you want to have a big change, you have to challenge people big. You don't just say, well, let's just ship another personal computer. Let's just do, you know, Snapchat for old people. You need to have a big challenge. And I tell you, when Steve presented us with the challenge for Macintosh, it wasn't about shipping another computer. It is about preventing worldwide domination by IBM, to prevent a totalitarian world, George Orwellian world. My favorite picture of Steve Jobs, right? Big challenges create big results. Number five, number five, what I learned from Steve is if you look at Apple, maybe until too recently, less is more. Maybe Apple went too far when they went to USB-C because apparently Apple employees, they don't have to stick an SD card in their computer. Apparently they never have to present so they don't need outgoing video. Apparently they love dongles. I don't understand this, I admit it, but generally speaking, less is more. And I'll show you two slides that illustrate this concept. This is a Steve Jobs slide. Let us, let us decompose this slide. Big, big graphic, right? The text, iTunes, 200-point font. The text, the best Windows app ever written, 90-point font. How many of you have presentations where the smallest font is 90 points? None of you. This is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs at his best. By contrast where the theory apparently was more is more, is Bill Gates. 
Now you tell me, which is the better slide, this one or this one? Now, both people became very successful and billionaires. I would make the case that Bill Gates overcame his slides to become a billionaire. <laughs> so yes, you can have slides like this and still succeed. Okay, it's not as simple as make the font bigger and reduce the text and you'll be the next Steve Jobs. It's not that simple. But I'll tell you something, when you have slides like this, you are not doing yourself a favor, okay? Less is more. Number six, number six that I learned from Steve, and you may be shocked because if Steve isn't known for changing his mind. He's known for always being right. But it's actually not true. And I'll show you a very good example of Steve Jobs reversing himself. When the iPhone was first introduced, basically it was a closed system. If you wanted to create apps for the iPhone, it had to be a Safari plugin. Right? And he did this because he wanted to keep the iPhone secure and reliable. Now, when he said this when iPhone was announced, you know, all the experts, all the, video, uh, all the journalists all said, Steve, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. You're so right. Close the iPhone. We want it secure and reliable. A year goes by, and he reverses himself 180 degrees. Now he opens up iPhone so you can write any kind of app. Again, the expert said, Steve, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. This is genius opening up the iPhone. The message here is that Steve changed his mind. He changed his mind and he completely reversed a huge policy. Changing your mind is a sign of intelligence. It is not a sign of stupidity. It is not a sign that you made a mistake. It is a sign that you are intelligent. Number seven. Number seven that I learned from Steve is that engineers should be treated as artists. This is a picture of Burl Smith, the analog engineer for the Macintosh division. Steve had a very, very special relationship with engineers because he realized engineers are the major means to the end. That for all the vision and all the passion and all the design sensibilities, you need engineers. I think in a startup, there are only two real functions, right? Somebody's got to make it. And somebody's got to sell it. That's it. Everything else is bullshit, right? You make it or you sell it. That's it. And in this process, the people who make stuff, like Burl, like Andy Hertzfeld, like Steve Capps, they are artists. You should treat them as artists. Number eight. Number eight is all the marketing you ever need to know as an entrepreneur. Very simple graph. This graph has two axes, uniqueness going vertically, Value going horizontally. If you've ever worked for McKinsey, if you've ever been through a McKinsey pitch, I'm telling you this is a two-by-two two matrix. You want to be in the upper right-hand corner, McKinsey would charge you $5 million. I'm giving it to you for free. Okay? <laughs> you want to be in the upper right-hand corner. Let's go through all four corners. The bottom right corner is I call the Dell corner. In the Dell corner, you have something that's useful, that's valuable, but it is not unique. In that corner, you always have to compete on price. Right? So this is Dropbox competing with Microsoft, competing with iCloud, competing with Google. It's all about kind of the same thing. In the cloud, you have to compete on price. You can make a lot of money there. Dell did it. But you're always competing on price. In the upper left-hand corner, you have something that's truly unique, but it is of no value. In that corner, you are just plain stupid. Okay? <laughs> The bottom left corner is even worse. The bottom left corner is what I call the dot-com corner. In that corner, 
You are not unique and you're not valuable. You're selling dog food online. The problem with selling dog food online is that it wasn't very valuable. Because yes, you could discount the dog food, the price of the dog food, but then you had to add back shipping and handling, and then someone had to be at home when UPS dropped off the dead cow in the can. So it wasn't convenient, just as expensive, not valuable. And then it wasn't unique because stupid people like me in Silicon Valley, we funded Pets.com, MyPets.com, ePets.com, LastMinutePets.com, right? The pitch, I'll give you the pitch so that you never use a pitch like this. 300 million Americans, one in four owns a dog. 75 million dogs. Each dog eats two cans of dog food per day. 150 million cans of dog food per day. Total addressable market. With my rock star programmers, who I met one weekend when we were all drunk, with my rock star programmers, how hard could it be to get 1% of this huge market? 1% of 150 million cans of dog food per day. 1.5 million cans of dog food per day. Conservatively speaking, multiply that by 365 because dogs eat every day. This is not B2B, this is B2C. Or more accurately, it's B2D. So, <laughs> so that's why there was pets.com, mypets.com, epets.com, last minute.com. Don't you ever dare. Do a 300 million Americans, one in four owns a dog. All I need to do is get 1%. I know you do that. I know you do that. How many of you don't do that? Okay, these are the liars in the audience. <laughs> the corner you want to be in is this upper right-hand corner. In that corner, you are unique and valuable. I think of the first iPod. It was unique. It had a user interface, a click wheel. People could comprehend that interface. It was also unique because it was the only way you could buy music cheaply from large brands, easily. It was unique and valuable. This is the holy grail of marketing. If you're an engineer, you build a product that's unique and valuable. If you're a marketeer, you convince people that what you have is unique and valuable. Number nine. Number nine is that innovators have to ignore naysayers. They have to ignore naysayers. You know, I think that there are two kinds of naysayers, or what I call bozos, two kinds of bozos in the world. One bozo, slovingly disgusting, body odor, pocket protector, Japanese watch, rusty car. You look at that person, you say, you're a loser. That is not the dangerous bozo, because only a loser listens to a loser. The dangerous bozo dresses in all black. The dangerous bozo owns a lot of things that end in I, like Armani, Maserati, Lamborghini, Ferrari, right? Audi is okay. So, <laughs> so this is the winner bozo, the winner bozo. This is the dangerous bozo because you think rich and famous parses to smart, but rich and famous parses to lucky half of the time. If rich and famous always parse to smart, then we should listen to Tom Cruise about spirituality. We should listen to Kim Kardashian about raising a family, okay? <laughs> this is the danger. So I think that cluelessness, bozosity is like the flu. How do you prevent the spread of this? You inoculate yourself. You need a little bit of bozosity so that when you encounter big bozosity, you've built up the resistance. I'm going to give you some exposure to bozosity. I think there's a world market for five computers. Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM. Five computers. I have five Macintoshes. I have all the computers in the world in my house. This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us. Western Union Internal Memo, 1876. 1876, Western Union wrote off telephony. Oops. You know, it could be Bitcoin, it could be Square, it could be PayPal, but nope, you know, can't jump to the telephone curve. How are you going to jump to the internet curve? There's no reason why anyone would want a computer in their home. Ken Olson, great entrepreneur, founder of DEC, so successful on the mini computer curve, he could not embrace the personal computer curve. This is if you owned the most successful ice factory 
How likely were you to embrace the refrigerator curve? Huh. If you had the most successful film business, how likely are you to embrace the digital photography curve? Don't let the bozos grind you down. I wish I could tell you that whenever someone tells you you'll fail, it means you'll succeed. It's not that simple. But if someone tells you you'll fail and you don't try, you'll never know, and you will fail. That's the test. Number 10. Number 10 is the most important thing I learned from Steve ever, which is some things need to believe to be seen. Most people, when they approach this, they think of the opposite. If I see it, I'll believe it. You people, you have to think like this. If people believe it, they will see it. My job as a Macintosh software evangelist was to get people to believe in a platform with no installed base, no tools, yet to buy a $10,000 Lisa to write software for this other computer. I had to make them believe that Macintosh was good news. It would increase people's creativity and productivity. And if enough developers believed and wrote software, Macintosh could then be true and seen. So for entrepreneurs, this is your approach to life. You have to get people to believe so they can see. That's how entrepreneurship works. That's why Apple became the first $700 billion company. My last two slides, I'm chief evangelist of a company called Canva, and I cannot resist the ability to tell you to please try Canva for your graphics, because if you want great graphics, that's the way to go. But this end of my editorializing, remember, I'm with her. I'm also with Canva. And I want you, I want you to change the world. That's what you're here for, okay? It's to make meaning, not to make money. Like, think of Google that democratizes information. Think of, think of Apple that democratized computer. That's what you want to do. You want to change the world. And these are the top 10 lessons that I learned about entrepreneurship and innovation from Steve. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.